This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, false prophets and unwanted messiahs, examining the white saviour trope in speculative fiction. It is the new year, 2022. Yep, 2022, we're going forward, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> Full of optimism and yes. joie de vivre, hopefully. <laughs> yep, it's a, it's a time of, of change, opportunity, possibility, and we're hoping that this year treats us with greater kindness than years gone past. Um... We're We've actually... obviously decided to start off with a nice light topic to yes. get us going this year. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we thought, yeah, we'd, we'd really hit the ground running with this one and be like, okay, let's... <laughs> <laughs> it's like people are sort of only just vaguely waking up from the from the winter stupor of drinking and eating and not knowing what date it is. And Dissecting Dragons comes in like with a bat going, woohoo, white saviour! <laughs> So you can, you can enjoy this at the end of your first week back at work after Christmas. Yes. You are welcome. Um, so I guess the, the, the first question is, why are we doing this episode? Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that keeps cropping up in all sorts of discussions about speculative fiction. And it seems to be more and more often lately. And for me personally, um, I am never going to argue that this isn't a trope and you know, potentially quite a damaging mm-hmm. or at least a very annoying and offensive one. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, people have started using it as shorthand when what they really mean is, I didn't want that character in that role, in that story. I wanted X, Y and Z instead. And the problem with diluting terminology like that means that it, it basically stops meaning what it originally meant and not in a, a language must progress and become more inclusive or must, you know, just evolve and mm. do different things kind of way. But in a very definite, the real issue is being obscured by people lazily losing, using terminology that they don't really understand. Yeah, I think the thing is that it goes from being uh, a warning which basically says this is harmful and we should be cautious of of what you know we're saying with this to becoming a barrier which people are using to say you can't tell these kinds of stories or you can't have white people in these particular roles anymore etc and it it essentially turns a very nuanced subject into something which is well I hate <laughs> excuse me for the terminology but very black and white you know yeah yeah absolutely um and that for me that has a lot of problems because it actually removes the important message which is in there which is about representation um and about you know allowing empathy for for other people other who look different from you who are different from you um, and kind of just says, oh, it's all it's either one way or the other way. And I just don't think that's right, um, because it actually spoils the whole discussion for everybody. And f- the way I see it is ultimately detrimental toward the main movement. 
Absolutely. And it doesn't help that then you have a certain contingent of people from certain groups who are very definitely using it for their own agenda and their own agenda includes race baiting. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, it's a potentially heavy topic and neither of us really has a, a horse in the race on this one. We, this is kind of something we've, we've noticed. We want to discuss it and we want to discuss it in a nuanced way, but it hasn't, it's, it's not really harmed either of us as yet. Yeah. I think is fair to say. Yeah, um, I, I agree. So, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna just try and do this from a position of of being neutral and saying what we think. Mm. Um, but but on the other hand, uh, you know, we we obviously welcome other perspectives on this on this as well. And we are not absolutely. Hopefully, if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time, you'll know we're not absolutely set in our ways. We'll have an opinion on something, but if you can bring us facts and figures, etc we're usually quite happy to change our opinions if if we find that, you know, yeah. your data holds up to inspection. Absolutely. So. You know, as Jill says, you know, we are looking at this a little bit from the outside. Um, we're acknowledging that. And, you know, part of the discussion is being able to hear alternative points of view. So we want to hear that. We want to hear what you guys have to say. Do you disagree with us? Do, you know, do you agree with us? What are your thoughts on the matter? Um, you know, we are always very open to hearing these things and to learning more, particularly from other perspectives. So um, please don't feel like we've basically said, this is law. <laughs> Gavel. Yeah, this far and far and no this far this far and no further. The line must be drawn here, kind of thing. Obviously that's not what we're doing. Um no. and we we've always urged people to question everything, including us, mm-hmm. and to make up their own minds. And we, we stand by that yes. with this episode as well. Completely agree. So uh from there, let's just start with a definition. So what is the white safety trope? Okay. So, um, originally, it's a, it was a cinematic trope, um, which has, you know, since been identified in books, um, sometimes erroneously, uh, whereby a white central character rescues a group of people of colour, usually black, but not always, um, from unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. Um, and, and we're not going to give examples at this point, simply because it will drive us away from our, our main point. We're going to try and stay relatively yeah. linear on this. Um, but yeah, as, a lot, as Madeline just said, a lot of touted examples aren't actually examples. And I think this is what's feeding into the confusion because there absolutely are examples out there. Yes. I'm not saying that yeah. that isn't a thing, but um, it's being misapplied labelling-wise. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so the problem with this trope... I'll break it down. So the first one is that the white main character is basically portrayed as a bit of a um, a messiah figure, a a messiani figure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, in its most extreme form, it absolutely can be. Yeah. Um, Another thing is, you know, the rescuing of people of colour characters from their plight is a vehicle used for him to learn something about himself it's nearly always a male character as well not always but nearly always so it's quite noticeable Um, again you have to apply context and when the book was written so if you're looking at something like Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs well that was written back in the late 19th century so yeah I'm not saying cut it some slack I'm just saying bear that in mind things were different exactly yeah um 
It reduces very complex sociological and historical race relations, usually to what is essentially a simple side quest for the hero. Yeah, that's the bit that always makes me really wince yes. when it's done that, and it's very it's done very obviously, and it's kind of like, oh my god, they're not your props. Yeah, um. exactly. Um, and it it also usually implies that people of color are not able to deal with the pro- their own problems, the problems that they face. Yeah, that their own cultural and historical and ethnic, etc. Yeah, all the issues that feed into, you know, the identity around that as yeah. well. The the, um, the the worst bit is when they're. It's not only that they can't deal with their own problems; they can't even. They're not even able to deal with their own sort of spirit, spirituality, and culture. Someone external to that comes in, and is more kind of connected to that than they are. Yeah, that's always a little bit ah as well. Uh, and okay, well again, we'll go into it in a bit yes. more detail later. But but most perniciously for me is that it casts people of color characters as victims every single time. Yeah. And the reason this bothers me, other than the fact that you know you start to get used to seeing yourself in a certain way, mm. if that is pushed at you in every direction, which stories are important for that reason. And if you were always cast as the victim, you know, in the same way that seeing yourself constantly being killed if you're gay, or seeing yourself constantly being raped if you're a female character, yeah, um, these are these are ongoing background noise messages. So being a, a person of colour and seeing your character constantly being cast as the victim is going to have problems. Yeah, and the the thing that really bothers me is that that contingent of people who have got a vested interest in setting various different races and ethnicities against each other really like to use this Mm. and they are very definitely making money out of it as well i mean the more i find out about it the more disturbing it is um it's outside the scope of this podcast but yeah do a bit of digging you'll find it it's there yeah the other thing is that as well as sort of basically meaning that people of color only ever see themselves represented as the victims um, you know, white people basically also see a narrative which constantly infantizes people of colour, which shows them as at best uh, weak and, you know, unable to deal with their own problems, and at worst as lazy, stupid, um, barbaric, savage, uh, lacking in, you know, um, what what's the word problem solving skills etc uh which is I, well i don't need to tell people that that is not a good narrative to consistently over and over again push out into the world absolutely not and to be honest in the same way that if you wanted to look at sort of the way up until fairly recently female characters were presented with the male characters very definitely being the go-getter, the hero, etc. Mm. That's damaging to both parties. Yeah, you know, both parties are victims of that system as well. Mm-hmm. So, and it is the same here. If you're constantly saying, "Well, you have to be the person who's the problem solver, the savior, etc.," mm. that that comes with its own. I mean, it's not the same, but it comes with its own unique set of difficulties as well. So, a more balanced and even view particularly when you're telling a historical narrative i think mm. is definitely called for yeah so 
the lazy terminology issue um this is the only thing i will get slightly ranty about because you know i, I absolutely hate laziness in writers yeah <laughs> it's it's the deadly it, it's all seven deadly sins in writing in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> all rolled into one um okay so yeah as i've said the white savior trope is definitely a thing and it definitely needs to be addressed uh, people of color are not mere accessories or or two or grateful ignorant savages inverted commas around the word savages but that mm -hmm. is certainly how it turns up in a lot of films and things yeah uh, for the white main character to use in his or her story um this is something which needs to be challenged however there is like so many other soundbite terms a tendency to apply it to every situation that appears to fit without examining the film or book or tv series or whatever in depth mm -hmm. absolutely and i think that 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 is where it starts to become an issue and we will absolutely get into examples in a moment yeah um yeah so i mean there are some critics who regardless of their own ethnicity or background will use it to define a piece of art simply because it suits their agenda as i've said or because they're lazy or maybe they just don't really understand i don't want to assume that people mm. just watch something and don't understand but i mean i'm sure there's plenty of things that have gone over my head as well or i've lacked sufficient interest to really delve into yeah um so it's dangerous to apply a throwaway label to something without thinking does it really fit yes um and ultimately it harms everyone so, um, I mean, we all know that Jules has a bee in her bonnet. <laughs> about... <laughs> a loud one. <laughs> a loud one. Um, you know, about, you know, real issues being buried under someone else's ignorance. Um, or worse, their attempts at five minutes of fame. And this is something particularly, you know, that I also, I really dislike. Which is when people... Um, take a shot at someone else's work usually in an attempt to promote themselves it's a horrible trend we've seen recently mm. in a lot of young adult fantasy and we've talked about it in various different podcasts so again we're gonna try and stay the course and not go off on a tangent but um, yeah and it, it largely taps into the same thing yeah absolutely um and most disturbingly it I've, we've seen trends of it which is you know authors of color attacking other authors of color of different ethnicities and stuff like that um yeah for for these things you know seeing each other as competition um and i really i really dislike that if you are going to analyze a book if you are going to pick out problematic content, you know, do it properly. You know, do it with thought. Don't just apply something. Don't make conclusions about something until you have, um, you know, really, really examined it. Um, particularly don't make sort of throwaway conclusions about things which, you know, when you have a huge audience who are relying on you to give what is essentially expert advice. Absolutely. And I think, okay, a, and a special bugbear is when someone says, this book is problematic because, and they list things and they list them out of context, and then they finish with, and I can't even. And it's like, okay, then you shouldn't even, because either it deserves in-depth examination 
at which point you examine your own internalised biases and come to a, a reasonable conclusion or you don't touch it you don't go in and say it's so terrible I can't even that's lazy yeah and also I mean look I know from the perspective of someone who, you know, throughout my academic career has made conclusions about things based on the evidence that I have so, you know, to hand, and then later on reanalyze that. I mean, our whole spiel right at the beginning there was that we are always open to new evidence and new light. So yes, I do accept that sometimes people might go, yeah, that's a white saviour trope from what they can see and what they've understood of it. And then perhaps in learning a little bit more about it have you know turned around and said oh actually maybe it isn't you can change your mind about these things that is allowed to happen just like you might do it the other way and say that's not a white savior trope and then look at it a little bit deeper and go eh, actually it, it sort of is <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely and we may well do that when we get to our examples in a minute yes. because you know we're very much going to be discussing them um the I guess the other thing I would say is that, and um, you know, it should go without saying, but we're going to say it anyway. And that is that you, you, rhetorical you, do not speak for everybody who is part of your race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, whatever. Mm. You, you just don't. You're, you're one voice in that group. Yeah. Um, it, it especially annoys me when you have people saying amplify, uh, you know, marginalised voices. Absolutely. And what they mean is amplify marginalised voices who are saying the things I like, not amplify everyone, because lots of people have got different opinions to me, and I really don't like that. If you hold an opinion and it is so fragile that you can't stand for anybody else to hold a different opinion, maybe you shouldn't be airing that opinion. Maybe you should be learning to be a more robust person. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is, this is the other thing. Everyone is different. And one thing I also, which I have seen, is people saying, you know, okay, I don't want to name any names, but I saw an example which was a um, uh, a queer person was basically defending a book which others had argued had poor representation. I think I think it was of the of of the bi experience or something like that. And they basically said that this queer person was a traitor and that this queer person was clearly faking it, that, you know, uh, you know, because this, this person was saying, oh, yeah, no, but this has been, this was my experience. And, you know, the attackers who were being very vocal were like, well, you're not actually part of this community. Um, you are against us, you know, uh, you, ha you have internalised you know, prejudice and stuff like that. And yeah. I, I just think, okay, I haven't read the, I, I didn't read the book that they were talking about, so I don't know. Perhaps I would read it and go, mm, maybe there is a little bit of internalised prejudice there. But the fact of the matter is, is that you cannot discount someone's voice if they say, actually, I find this to be representative of me and an accurate portrayal of me. Um... And if you, you know, you cannot say that um, and you cannot accept, you, you cannot put forward the idea that your voice is the only right voice and that no one else, um, and that anyone else who agrees with you, regardless of whether they are part of the minority that you are defending, are either wrong or they're traitors or things like that. That, that 
that gets very dangerous absolutely it's really well you know you have to you have to look for this because you know the people who are really screeching over the top are the ones who've got a vested interest in keeping us all at each other's throats yeah Um, but there is a lot of um black americans african americans who are saying uh you know i don't think x y or z is that much of a problem i watched this film and i didn't feel offended i didn't read i read this book and i didn't feel offended i don't understand what people are getting so upset about i'm rejecting the victim mentality that is being spoon-fed to us yeah and people on the other side hate that they hate it so much that these people get doxxed they get abuse um there's an example of this happening within the trans community where a trans person stood up for a another artist who is a friend of theirs who had been been accused of being transphobic mm-hmm. and certain contingent of the trans community turned on them and obviously this person had a lot going on in their life as well yeah. i'm sure it wasn't the only thing but six days after tremendous abuse from the trans community which they were a member of this person killed themselves oh my god so i imagine that abuse did not help yeah this is the problem with being so fragile that you cannot allow someone else to have an opinion and newsflash it's possible for both people to have contradictory opinions and both of them to have some merit yes because nobody is completely right yeah i completely agree so this is this is why this sort of thing and us doing an in-depth examination of this trope is important i think yes yeah completely agree um <laughs> sorry that, that actually sorry, that really was really hard <laughs> no yeah it, it was that was a bit of a heavy one and again i don't want to name names i don't want to bring in side quests and things here because we're, we're focusing on something else but yeah it's incredibly upsetting when you see people who should be united no matter what different opinions they all hold turning on each other yeah and it's usually an agent provocateur from the outside doing that little pivot for whatever reason to be honest yeah i i also tend to see that a lot of people who are getting outraged about certain things they're doing it on behalf of a minority that they're not actually part of that they're not yeah it it's very disturbing seeing the the cause du jour take over isn't it yeah so um yes upsetting things but again we're looking at this particular trope so um the final thing is and this is not going to be a popular opinion but everyone regardless of race or ethnicity has some internalized racism and it's still racism if you are a person of color or an ethnic other which apparently is what i am being irish and various other things um so yeah saying something saying something that is okay we've had the whole thing with the cricket player recently haven't we Uh. which again not not going into but you you've got somebody who is claiming quite rightly that racist comments have been made against them and it turns out that this person has also again made racist comments so uh, nobody is pure okay <laughs> yeah we all need to be a bit more tolerant of each other I, I i tend to agree i think the problem is and this is obviously a big part of what comes into the white savior thing is is how do we define racism because i think that there's racism on several levels um and this is just my personal opinion jules may disagree with me i think 
there is racism on the level which everybody sort of has kind of naturally um that we are kind of born with prejudice against people who don't look like us whom we don't recognize um which i think is alleviated also a little bit if you happen to live in a very multicultural place because from a young age you see lots and lots of different people um and therefore don't um you know this is just the sort of the norm whereas if you're raised in the you know a, a small island a small scottish island where everybody is white <laughs> and you don't see um anyone of color until you know uh you're sort of you're 18 and everyone around you is racist um or says different things then you're going to that's going to affect you so i think that there's that on the some level but i think the other thing which is the thing that a lot of people are usually talking about is the systemic the systemic racism the racism which has been born not of kind of this this sort of innate okay we're sort of born being a bit wary of other people but of this um this system which has been put in place this class system which has very particularly had a profound effect on uh people of color and particularly uh black people um and depending where you are in the world uh asian people etc um and so i think you know there's there's these two levels which is why when people start talking about oh that's racist and then other people say no white people you know you can't be racist against white people i tend to see right because you're talking about racism in, in terms of this huge systemic you know system which has been put in place and as a white person i sort of i i kind of look at okay what what's the definition in the dictionary um how has it been redefined i understand language evolves i don't feel like i can comfortably <laughs> personally i don't feel like i can comfortably say this is what racism actually is i feel like i'm not even allowed to say that anymore well because i think it's it's multi multi-dimensional well this is where you delve into history and you look at cultural things i've done an awful lot of reading on this over the last year um mm. from various different sources and do you know when they started saying that um people of color especially black people in america could not be racist against white people when do you know what the inciting incident was the inciting incident was when they started displaying racism to people with different levels of um melanin content in their skin so you had very very dark african americans being racist towards those who are lighter and vice versa and at that point the entire argument of there being a systemic race issue collapses so thereby they had to call it something else so they called it prejudice it was a very deliberate move that was put in place and i have fact checked on this i have done my more than 3 independent sources of verification and if anyone wants to go and check it out themselves they i suggest they do um okay it's really really interesting um this isn't me again grinding an axe about this thing i'm just saying it's a lot more complicated than nuanced than people think it is um an interesting thing a comedian said was that <laughs> the uk does it best the uk doesn't really have racism in the way they understand it in certain parts of america the UK has classism which is how you get to be racist against other white people 
And I'm like, actually, that makes a really good point because the real enemy is poverty and some cultural issues where people have been very deliberately kept in a state where they can only aspire to do certain jobs and earn certain amounts of money and, and yeah. are being used. Now, in that respect, yes, there is definitely an institutional thing going on, but it's not the one people think it is. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously there is a link between classism and racism as well. These two things have been combined, combined particularly because of how black people were treated and how they were slaves and then servants and things like that um definitely but also but that it, it also I... means that you can have you can have you know members of the current tory party for example who are people of color and you can have pretty that racist. yeah <laughs> actually pretty racist yeah i think it's a reductive argument to say that a person of color cannot be racist of course they can anyone who says that has never been in a bangladeshi restaurant with a hindu guy <laughs> and if you want to see racism in action i suggest you go and have a meal like that with somebody because it'll be really really eye-opening for you yeah i mean i i lived in bangladesh and even when i was living in the uae i saw it on several levels particularly against there was a lot of racism racism against filipino people yeah whom uh, you know there is a large community of filipino people who had come to do service jobs in the uae and i can only call it racism the way that they were treated yeah absolutely um and every time i think oh god i i've really screwed up somewhere um i need to I also rebalance it with the fact that when I've been put in a position where there was some some genuine race issue type stuff going on, I can I can honestly say hand on my heart I have so I, I've spoken up I've said something about it as long as I knew what was going on and if we're going back to me being a child then obviously there, mm. there were times when I probably didn't know what was going on, um, but you remember and you learn that this doesn't make me a saint way and it doesn't mean that I haven't screwed up sometimes because I absolutely have but it also doesn't yeah. mean that I haven't actually experienced some of it myself to a much lesser degree and for years I didn't have a category to put that in because people go oh well you're white and the thing is you there are many many different flavors of white okay and there are many different if you look at the historical timeline the timeline where you know, the Italians became white and the Spanish became white and then the Irish became white is, you know, it's a lot narrower than people think it is. Yeah. So clinging to this narrative of, well, people who look like you have always kept people that look like me down in, in the dust is, again, it's reductive, it's not accurate. And holding on to, you know, either a conqueror mentality or a victim mentality, again, is reductive. We need to be so much more inclusive. Yeah, and recognise how much nuance there is with these things. Because, not least because by recognising the nuance, we can actually address the systemic problems that are occurring. Yeah. Because if we look at it just as a, again, just as a simple binary problem, you, it becomes a lot harder to unpick. I think it absolutely does 
and it you know it suits various different groups for people to say oh well you're being kept down because of this rather than you are not being given opportunities because it suits this group of people this if you like this top one percent mm-hmm. to have people like you living in poverty yeah and the people like you can be any any ethnicity but it suits them to keep you there because they do quite well out of it yeah but nobody wants you looking at that and of course the whole classism thing is that you know with the also the way that cl- the sort of classism works if you are born into a wealthy family you are likely to go on to live a relatively comfortable and wealthy life whereas it's yeah. it's much harder to kind of move away which is also why i people go oh middle classes and they sh- angrily shake their fists and i'm like no the creation of the middle class is incredibly important because you do not want a two system class you really don't you need to have somewhere to go you, yeah you need to because <laughs> if you create this class then there's basically either poverty or super rich and getting out of extreme poverty is incredibly difficult um you want there to be a system a ladder to climb it's not the perfect system but i think a lot of the arguments of ah be angry at the middle class this is all created by you know people up higher who would rather have middle we, the middle class are always going to be closer to the working class than they're ever going to be closest to the to the to the I hate upper class but i can't think of another term um you know just like we are always closer to being homeless than we are to being a, a billionaire pretty much yeah, all of us absolutely um and i have to say i've had a lot <laughs> because i live in the cotswolds um there are some very very poor people around where i live Mm. and there are some incredibly wealthy not least to say titled and even royal individuals near where i live and i've had interactions with almost all groups of people Mm. and there are some really good guys on all all sides of the line there are there are people who are clearly part of the top one percent and the amount of work they do the things they put in place um to help raise other people up is absolutely phenomenal and it's it's almost completely unsung they're doing it because they can yeah there are also people who do fuck all (laughs) they're genuinely the fuck all yeah and the one thing i will notice that i genuinely really think makes a difference for climbing out of this um this isn't supposed to be an episode about poverty but i will just finish this because it does kind of feed into the whole race thing yeah um is i see i've you know i had patients back when I worked in the industry who who were basically titled and their children came in um, to have work done or whatever and the confidence that came off these children because they'd never ever had this worry about where money was coming from yeah and they were lovely they were perfectly polite they were well spoken they were brilliantly educated they were intelligent they were very very prompt some of the most promising youngsters I've ever seen Mm-hmm. they'd had every opportunity and they were they were taking it you know these were these were good kids but they had a confidence that you just don't see in children from state schools you just don't see it because you know it's a it's a system that is struggling under its own weight yeah there isn't enough money there isn't enough funding there aren't enough teachers per pupil etc yeah absolutely so and and, and the other thing to, to say is obviously the parents at home have the time and facility to be able to gently guide these children and push them towards education and going for better opportunities, which if you are 
a single mum or you're from a family where neither of you you basically both just make the minimum wage and you've got three or four children and you're really trying but you're never really home because you're trying to earn money to feed your children yeah you just you can't do it that this is where the cultural side of it comes in yeah absolutely and i think this is why also we see systemic racism within this classes system because again if we go back a few hundred years where we have you know um the british empire sort of extending out um across the world technically there are people on the other side of the world who have of completely different ethnicity who are who are british they are technically british um they come to england they come to work they come to fight in the world wars etc they come with very little uh, and they have very few opportunities at the time but they build a life for themselves they work hard they find you know communities etc things like that they are working class because that is all that is open or accessible to some of them now of course to others because it's very silly to imagine that oh all people of color who came to the uk were poor that's not the case at all um there were lots of people of color who were incredibly wealthy um sometimes they lost their wealth because of war or sometimes they came to the uk with their wealth and they established themselves you know with this wealth uh, but you do have a lot of families who are coming in um who are coming in as as you know sort of escaping a war or or coming in for new possibilities new life new potential they have very little they're working class and their children therefore are also working class and their children are working class uh, no matter how hard they work it's very hard for them to break up break out into this next class particularly during the time where um the middle class as it were was only just really starting to form so yes there is a link between classism and racism and systemic racism because a lot of the people of color who were coming into the country um were working class yeah although interesting statistic and it actually doesn't really apply to uk because you get quite a lot of um sort of black minorities who go on and do very very well over here yeah. um but you know the the asian groups tend to be sort of knocking it out of the park um in america it's comparatively far fewer african-americans black americans who are doing well and going on to secondary education and doing well there again the asian communities are absolutely knocking it out of the park and have been for years and what's really interesting is that during the late Victorian, well, I say Victorian, obviously you weren't ruled by Queen Victoria mm -hmm. in America, but sort of for reference, the late Victorian Edwardian period and right up until sort of the 60s, yes, there was absolutely still a lot of racism in that in America. But up until that point, the black communities were doing quite well in terms of education and various other things. So again, it's not as cut and dried as people think it is. I'm not saying it's not there it's just people are joining dots and they're making a poodle and i don't think there's actually a poodle i think it might be a completely different animal <laughs> yeah certainly i think that you've got to look at sort of longer stretches of history and deeper into it in order to have this conversation because 
if you don't acknowledge it, you don't understand exactly what has occurred to create such terrible situations for so many people and to create and, and to enforce this systemic racism. Anyway, let's get back to the white saviour. <laughs> right, the bit we're actually supposed yes. to be talking about. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah, we did. I think it's a bit of useful background information. and Maybe we should come back and revisit a whole poverty issue at some point. Yeah, but... I agree. Okay, let's look at some examples. So, I mean, as we've we've had a pretty comprehensive discussion there of what some of the selection pressures, yeah. to use biological language, are. Um, and again, to reiterate, what a lot of the rest of this discussion is, is our opinion. And your opinion of it is just as valid as well. Okay, so if you completely disagree, again, we're open to hearing yeah, about it. And we, we'd love to hear about it. We particularly would like to hear, because th- as again, we're both white. Um, we've both benefited from certain systems being That's in place. Jules's case, very, very so, white. So white. Very white like, the beacons <laughs> the beacons have been lit. Gondor calls for aid, white. Um, thank you so much you're welcome. I was thinking the same thing, but thank you. <laughs> um, but, uh, whereas I'm a little bit more Mediterranean, sort of going in towards the Greek islands, white. Um, I don't... <laughs> When was that considered white? Who knows? Anyway, um... <laughs> well, technically, you guys were considered white first, and the Celts were considered the yellow people. This is going back a couple of thousand years. And then you kind of got considered not white, and then re-whited again before the Italians and the Irish. So This is, this is so confusing. It is, I'm isn't also, it? Yeah. I'm also, I've also got some Italian in there as well, so... Who knows? It's, it's, a, it's a weird ballpark. Um, anyway... <laughs> We would right. love to hear so, from people who um, <laughs> who have different ethnicities. <laughs> please, please tell us your thoughts on this. Um, we, you know, we would love to to continue the discussion. So let's have a quick look at some examples, um, which are not as cut and dry, we think, as some people have laid them out to be. Yeah. Um. Okay, to b- bear in mind with this first one, is we're going to talk about the help. Mm. And bear in mind that I've, I've read the book as well. Mm. And I enjoyed both the film and the book. Now, I realise that this is told from a very... Well, certainly the book, obviously, because it's from Skeeter's perspective. Yeah. Is, is a white perspective. And I can absolutely understand the argument that it's like, oh, well, this is... So you've got a white character there who you can feel vaguely smug and self-congratulatory about. And I'm like... You know, I can see your point on that. Yeah. What I do want to say is pretty much every other white person in that book and in that film is a complete asshole. So I'm really not patting myself on the back that much about that. No. And the point with Skeeter is that she is recognising that they are all part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she even makes the point to say, you know, when one of the... I think it might be her... Someone who... who sort of looked after her when she was growing up says well what if we tell you things you don't want to hear that you don't like she's like well it's not my business yeah to like it or not like it what i'm after is the truth yeah so yes it's annoying um i'm gonna go off on a very slight tangent here if i say the name mileva marik do you know who i'm talking about no idea mileva marik was einstein's first wife she was a brilliant physicist she was, I want to say she was Romanian, but I could be wrong. No, Serbia. She was born in Serbia. And, you know, she had 
uh, one leg that, you know, so she was technically disabled as well. So she had a slight problem with one hip. Mm -hmm. I think it was hip dysplasia at birth. And she became involved with Einstein when they were at university together. Einstein is not a particularly good mathematician, by the way, or he wasn't. Um, But Mileva was an absolute fucking genius. She really was. And she would have got her physics degree, even in the fact that this was sort of like in the 1920s when women just didn't really get to go to university and they certainly didn't do hard sciences. She was that good. Right. Um, But she and Einstein, Einstein sort of pushed her and pushed her and eventually she gave in and slept with him. And um, he got her pregnant. And, you know, he didn't have abortions in those days. So she went home to her parents and had the baby and unfortunately missed out on her degree. Right. Uh, It's very noticeable that Einstein just sort of didn't say anything at all about this and there was letters back and forth because he'd promised to marry her and yet nothing was forthcoming and he was just being kind of a drip and eventually they did get married um years later there was a terrible tragedy and she lost her daughter her daughter died Mm. and it was shortly after this that Mileva came up at least with the maths behind the theory of relativity and quite probably the theory of relativity herself And she talked about it with her husband who, you know, obviously this is a very intelligent woman, you know, staying home and doing the cooking and cleaning and looking after the children is not going to be enough for her. So he discussed a lot of his problems with her. She helped him with a lot of the maths on his stuff and he just wasn't getting the recognition he thought he deserved. And eventually she sort of posits this theory to him and he he has a light bulb moment. He can see how brilliant this is. This is Nobel Peace Prize winning information. And they write a joint paper together and Einstein submits it and he takes her name off the paper. And now we all know who Albert Einstein is because he's the inventor of the theory of relativity, but nobody really knows who Mileva Marek was, um, even though she's at least co-author of that particular paper and the theory of relativity. For contrast, this is at the same time that Marie Curie was also making discoveries regarding things like radium. Mm. Can you remember the name of Marie Curie's husband, other than Mr. Curie, obviously? No. No. Well, he didn't really come up with anything all that gripping, but he did support his wife and he promoted her and he helped look after the children and he was proud of her achievements and he encouraged her to keep going. What I'm getting at here is that in this particular period of history, it was very much a man's world. Yeah. Forget the whole sort of the glass ceiling thing that people are talking about now, because compared to that, compared to how it was back then, it's it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And you needed, unfortunately, a father or a brother or a husband to speak up for you if you were brilliant, because they would not listen to you if you were female. Yeah. So what I'm getting at with the help, unfortunately, is that, yes, it's annoying that you needed a white person to act as an intermediary so that all these black women who were being so badly treated by their female bosses and othered and made to use separate toilets and treated kind of like animals, only good enough to look after the children, it's annoying that you needed a white person to draw attention to that so that other white people would listen and the system would change. But that was the time it was. Yeah, historically it is accurate. And I think it also, for me, it highlights something else which is incredibly important, which is actually 
well worth considering when you look at the history of racism, which is that historically there were lots of white people who didn't agree with slavery. And there were lots of white people who who actually did back equality among people of colour. It wasn't it wasn't a oh this is just the way that all white people were. And this is important. It's important to recognise this because it actually means that when we look at things historically, you cannot just basically throw out the comment which is, oh that's just the way things were back then. That's just all you know they they were everything's fine. All white people were like this. No, there were lots of people who recognised that this was not the right form of behaviour. And so I don't think it's a bad thing to actually have that in a book. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm also pretty sure that the author of The Help is is a white woman. She is, and she was writing from the perspective of having grown up in that kind of very pressured, you know, white homemaker with plenty of wealth environment and feeling that the person she most felt close to as a mother was the black domestic servant in her house and how awful it was how she didn't really understand as a child why this person who was more family to her than her own family was not being treated like family yeah well and yeah so it came out of that so yes it's a very you know it's a white person's perspective but i don't agree that it's a white savior perspective no um particularly yeah she provides i think she provides the the opportunity in a society where the opportunity would not have been available but it is not it's not limited um and i don't think she's seen as a messiah figure the the, the book isn't about sort of saying oh what a good person you are or um you know it isn't self-congratulatory in that way it's an accurate portrayal of of what was happening and I will also say that when I went to see the movie and I went to see it under my my mother's recommendation um because she'd also read the book um both of us were incredibly moved because as I mentioned before I you know I grew up in southern Asia and across the Middle East um where there were a lot of people who had domestic help um, nannies in particular and the things that we saw the way that these people were treated was gobsmacking they were there they were taking care of the children you know and you know as someone who at times you know i had a nanny as well when both of my parents were working and i you know was at home i had a nanny i was incredibly close to her incredibly close to her um and i heard stories from her about you know the way that she'd been treated or the way that her friends were being treated um and my mother told me about stories where she'd have people she'd met other sort of um other sort of expats as the word is uh, basically saying oh yes we we've done this and she'd listen she'd go and she'd listen in horror going why are you proud of terrorizing you know yeah why are you proud of this and the story then for me the help it is not a story just about the past it is a story which is just as much about the present 
Um, yeah. And it's uh, and it, it basically says this is not excusable, and you can't even put it under the guise of ah, oh, well, that is just it's just the way things were because no, the character of Skeeter proves the fact that people. White people who were in this position of power recognised that it was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. It, I think it, it brings up a far more nuanced discussion of the entire thing. And I'd also like to say that, yes, absolutely, if you want to argue that the, there should be a version of the help where it's told entirely from the black domestic servant's perspective, yeah, okay, I'm on board with that. Yeah. I- but it's also... That this whole situation is a story that belongs to both parties, and I think that's something people do not want to recognise. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And if, you know, the author is looking back on our own experiences and talking about that from... Well, first of all, I think it's only responsible that if she wants to talk about her childhood and this life and these observations, um, that, yeah, she decides to do it as a white woman, not sort of pretending to be, you know... That that would be wrong, I think, be to assume a black domestic's voice and to go from there. Yeah. I'll never say never on things, but that would make me much more uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think it would... And interesting sort of comment about Zadie Smith. Um, she, she wrote sort of for The Guardian. Um, and she made a comment about the fact that if we say no you're not allowed to write these stories or not allowed to include stories about people of other cultures and stuff like that what we're essentially saying is we cannot we do not believe that you can imagine or can empathize with their situation which is a very dangerous idea to put forward to basically say we cannot empathise with with other people in that way. We cannot connect with other people that way. They are so different. They are so other. And that's counterproductive. We do not want to create a sense of otherness between people of different ethnicities. Um, yeah, I completely agree yeah. with uh, that. Zadie, just look up the Zadie Smith quote. She says it much more eloquently than I do. Um, well, you know, she is a man booker winning yes, author. So. that certainly helps, I think. Um, so, yeah, I... I Personally, I agree. I don't think that The Help has a white saviour narrative, but I can completely understand people saying, okay, but we want this story from a black perspective. And what would have been really yeah. nice is if is if we got to see the black people using their own power to be able to tell the story. But historically, The Help is not inaccurate, I think. No. No, certainly from what I've Look, because when people started saying oh, it was a white savior narrative, and I went and looked into it, the more I looked into it, the more I was kind of like, yeah, I still don't agree that it is. That's my default position. Someone says something I don't agree with, so unless I know something a lot about that subject, I go and do some research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't like being wrong, and I really don't like being wrong publicly. <laughs> so I like to have all my ducks in a row if I'm going to argue with someone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. My second example is something I saw again recently and it is a really good film and it's very poignant and upsetting and um, affecting and it really, I find it, it really annoys me to see people dismiss it and say don't watch that, it's a white saviour narrative. Um, 
as if there's no value to it at all because it makes some of the most amazing points about um, basically inherited institutionalized racism in the South in America that I've ever seen. Mm. And those points are made by Samuel L. Jackson's character. So um, have you seen it? I haven't seen it, no. Okay, um, just brief synopsis then. So uh, it's Sandra Bullock as a young... um, She's sort of a law student, Mm -hmm. incredibly brilliant. Matthew McConaughey, celebrated lawyer, takes on the cases that other people don't kind of thing. Yeah. And for a a white guy living in that area at that time, he's actually pretty okay, you know? Um, And Samuel L. Jackson, who is someone who works at a local plant and has quite a large family, etc., and lives on the poor side of town. Um, The 10-year-old daughter of Samuel L. Jackson's character is walking home one evening, um, not not even one evening, one afternoon, carrying the groceries, and two basically rednecks who have been harassing people in the store she was just in follow her in their truck, and they abduct her, and they take her off into the woods, and they violently rape her and torture her, and then throw her um, into the river, assuming that'll be it because they tried hanging her and the rope broke. Um, it's it's absolutely horrific. The film goes into more detail, but you don't really see a lot of it. Right. You don't need to, it's that. But it, you know, it, it's awful and very affecting. No punches are pulled in that respect. Okay. But she survives. They find her. And the, you know, whatever anybody else thinks around town, nobody's nobody's a fan of this. And they find one of her shoes in the truck bed and things, and the two boys are arrested. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Samuel L. Jackson's character goes off and speaks to Matthew McConaughey's character. I'm je- dreadful with character names, so I do apologise. And says, you know, what are the chances of them walking because they're white boys? And Matthew McConaughey's sort of like, well, I don't know what a jury is going to say before they actually say it. He said, but they did get them dead to rights, so they should serve some time for it. Yeah. Um, but the, although, understand, you know, this is sort of the early 90s, and it's set in the early 90s in Louisiana. Um, but both of them, the unspoken part of that conversation is both of them know that whatever they do is not going to fit the crime. Yeah because of this, because of the way the legal system is set up. Um, Because, you know, the jury is going to be white and have this mindset that they've inherited. And Samuel L. Jackson says, and what would happen if someone were to take out those boys? And Matthew McConaughey is kind of like, oh, yeah, don't even think about it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, And what happens is they are walking in, I think they're walking into the courthouse, these two lads that have done what they've done Mm -hmm. and Samuel L. Jackson just opens fire on them comes out with (laughs) some semi-automatic shotgun and opens fire on them and kills both of them Mm. and accidentally wounds one of the police officers who is standing nearby um, who loses his leg well you see you're saying oh right like you think oh well everyone will understand that but that's not what happens. No 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 I'm saying oh right like because the thing is, it, it's bad enough that if he kills criminals, but the system, particularly if he injures a policeman as well, that yeah. is, oh god, they, like, it's even worse because yeah. they will want vengeance for that. Yeah. Yeah. This policeman loses his leg as well. Right. 
Um, anyway, obviously he's arrested. He's not really expecting to get away with it, mm -hmm. but he cannot allow two child rapists who've done that to his daughter to just walk free. Yeah. Um, and Matthew McConaughey takes up the case for him. And it, it's it's awful. He, oh, you think of your Twitter mob now. Well, this was in person. This is Pete, the clan lighting crucifixes in his back garden. Yeah. And someone bombing his house and his wife and his own child having to leave the leave that particular state and go and stay with their grandparents. I think I do actually know this story, but please continue on. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but the what strikes me is, yes, you've got a white lawyer. Who else in that situation is going to be more convincing than a white lawyer? Yeah. Yes, I'm sure it would be more satisfying to have someone who is the same colour as Samuel L. Jackson his character um defending him we'd like that i mean you you've got a black sheriff and things so it, it's not like people are completely underrepresented except in very poor roles it's not like that um but at the same time this kind of like no this is what louisiana's like at the moment guys and you need to look at it mm. and what really strikes me apart from the, the entire thing is the point where matthew mcconaughey is talking to samuel l jackson in samuel l jackson's cell mm -hmm saying that you know i i don't think we can win this it, it, this this has gone too far I, d I don't see how i can make a jury see what they don't want to see at this point mm -hmm. and samuel l jackson turns around and says you're one of them if you can't make them see it no one can yeah he's like i know you don't think of me as some one of the, one of the others but you can't help but be someone else you know our kids will never play together. No one will step over that dividing line. What he said, I could have gone to the church and got them to get me a fancy lawyer and maybe have the same result. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to win tomorrow. But I picked you because you're one of them. You know how to speak their language. You know how to make them listen. Not because I think you can get me off, but because I want them to think for one moment what it would be like if it was one of theirs. Yeah. I need to cry. And it, it was that incredible sort of like he really put him in his place. Yeah. In the sense of you don't understand. You can't understand. And I don't blame you for the fact that you can't understand. But, you know, you've been going on along this whole time almost in a I don't see race kind of situation. And actually it's very much there. And the reason you're not getting anywhere is because you're trying to be open minded, but you're not seeing the actual issue in the same way that I am because I'm living it. Yeah. Uh, that I think that perfectly also sort of lays out the the whole problem with the I don't see race argument yeah. because on the one side it's you know you want it to be as a statement of I see everybody equally yeah absolutely but the problem with that is that when you if you if you say that you can also end up basically saying that I am ignoring the inherent system which is in place um and you have to acknowledge that you have to because to fail to do so is not actually to be you know um equal to see everybody equally but to be at best willfully ignorant of yeah. um of the reality and again as a story 
it makes an incredible amount of sense realistically if you were in that position um hiring a black lawyer would yeah. not help in that and situation the issue is that hiring a black lawyer would have been probably someone from out of state who did not have a firm understanding of the attitudes, you know, the cu the local culture and, you know, the interactions mm. in that particular area at that particular time, which is something that you really needed. Yeah. And again, this is one of those situations where you look at it and go, I'd love to see a story. I'd love to see a version of this where actually a black lawyer is hired and somehow makes it work. I'd love to see a version of that. Um, it, I think it would be harder to make it sort of swing realistically, but not impossible. Um, yeah. But just because we want to see other versions of this story doesn't mean that the story itself is inherently evil or racist or that this is a white saviour you know, role, because I don't think it is. I don't think so. Um, he's set, is there an element of Matthew McConaughey's character where he's kind of being a bit self-congratulatory? Yes, but not because he's representing a black person accused of murder, but because he is, he's got the moxie and the arrogance of a top lawyer. You know, you kind of want those guys to be a bit like that, otherwise they wouldn't get in the ring. Yeah. It's like, you don't want a brain surgeon to be really sort of timorous and hesitant. You want someone who's got the moxie to sort of cut into your brain. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it makes sense. And also, to be honest, even if he had been a little bit self-congratulatory, Samuel L. Jackson's lines there, you know, where he's basically saying this is the situation, basically highlights the fact that it doesn't really matter because the of the, of the situation which is sort of in place. You might have this character, who the, the lawyer character, who is ultimately a good person and is maybe sort of seeing himself as a little bit, you know, as the saviour of, oh, look at me, I've done a good job. There are people who do that, uh, who are very self-congratulatory. Um, but it depends very much how the story frames it. So if the story frames him as, look at him, he's a good guy, which from what you've described, it doesn't. It frames it as, this is a black man who has pulled this other guy up because he knows that he can speak the language of the legal enforcement in the area. Um, yeah, and he wants him basically to make them understand if even for a moment the situation and so far as I remember one of the big lines is that this guy describes the whole thing to the court and then turns around and looks at it and says and now imagine she was white yeah um, and yeah for me that's basically a na narrative about what reality is like and the unfairness of the situation not about saying oh but the white people make it right in the end i don't feel like that's that's what it's trying to say no um but yeah looking back again at my my einstein and Meliva example um unfortunately sometimes if you have a certain set of people in power you need one of them to speak first and it sucks yeah 
but that's how you start to make the change. When it becomes a problem is when that person or whoever won't let you have the mic when they don't need to be speaking for you. Yeah, completely agree. And guys, this is one of the fun things about writing fantasy is that you can change the systems. You can rewrite the systems in whatever way you want, which is awesome. But if you are drawing on things from the real world, then you've got to actually draw from the real world and do it with accuracy. And that comes in from both perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, we have only gotten halfway through our uh, discussion uh, because of the little derailment we had earlier on where we kind of actually really got into the nitty gritty of racism um, and we barely touched on it. I mean, like, I still sort of look at it and go, I don't understand all of this I, because it's so mixed up and and it's the word has been used for so many different things. Like my, my, my vaguest, I can only narrow it down to don't be a dick to people. Um, but, you know, <laughs> uh, so... We, we've only been able to get through half of what we wanted to discuss. So, surprise! This is going to be a two-parter. So we're going to finish off here for now. And you can look forward to the next thrilling installment next week. I know you guys are looking forward to it. Before we go, we do have a recommendation for you. Um, and Jules, you are going to be telling us more about it. Yes, um, well... I've got a bit of a controversial recommendation this week, and that is a book. It's quite a, sh- a reasonably short but quite comprehensive book by Thomas Sowell, who is a black economist, mm-hmm. um, American, and extremely, you know, good, switched on, really, really intelligent guy. And the book is called uh, Black Rednecks and uh, White Liberals, and it's not going to be popular with everyone. I, I will promise promise you that but even if you read it and you think i don't agree or i don't like it it's thought-provoking and i think it's the sort of thing that you know we can be a bit too insular in our choice of what to read and what to watch and things i strongly recommend you give this one a go because this isn't set out there in in a way to sort of annoy you or upset you this is kind of like there are facts that you probably aren't aware of and this is a good one especially considering our topic this week Mm. Okay, definitely one to look out for. Also, guys, just remember, whenever you see facts, consider how they've been framed. Yes, absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, facts can be more complicated than they're laid out as. Okay, I'm saying this like I'm talking to my students. Guys, please. (laughs) Uh, Don't just read Wikipedia. Go for other sources. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and on that note guys we're going to say thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes for more information visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com 
Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 